0: So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. The title of it in some of your Bibles is, Is it Lawful to Pay Taxes to Caesar? And I, was, I like that title because I'm thinking, I hope the answer is no. <laughs> let's pick up at verse 15. Then the Pharisees, everyone say Pharisees, Pharisees, went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I love Jesus' response. Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? (laughs) It's like, he goes right for the jugular. I'll explain momentarily. He says, Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Who are they? And the Herodians. And they bring him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. It's like, you can't even compete with this guy. We're done. Mic drop. He walked, they just walk away. Just why did we even bother? It's kind of a cool passage, but I'm going to need a lot of help getting through it, so please, let's pray. Lord, as we examine this passage of Scripture, where you contend the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God, and folks are trying to trip you up, and amazingly, through your divine wisdom, you just leave them baffled and stunned and speechless. And so, God, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you lead us into all truth. And through this passage, would you inspire us, encourage us? Challenge us, equip us, bless us in accordance with your riches in Christ. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to your word and we thank you. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat, relax. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. So, the Pharisees are these religious leaders, they're the teachers of the law, they're the political leaders in the location of Israel. And they're in Jerusalem and they're trying to tangle Jesus up and they're trying to, you know, mix politics and religion and they're trying to see if, if he knows how to navigate politics and religion and they're going for it. And, and not only that, the, the Herodians, we have Herod who built this, this structure in Tiberias under the, the Caesar, and uh, he is—he's um, uh, one of the tetrarchs, and he's ruling over this location by authority of Rome. So they've got Rome involved, they've got the Pharisees involved. The people are there. The—the the Jews hate the Romans. Herod is like in between the Jews and the Romans. He's an Idumean, and—and—and uh, and this is this is a tense situation. The Pharisees think we got him. We're going to get this thing, and so they're going to—they're going to plot Rome against the Jews, and they're going to plot you know uh rome against uh, uh the church and they're going to uh, politics and religion and and we're going to get you trapped up and we got you covered and and they they figure out and they're talking amongst themselves and they're doing all the legal aspects of it and they come to him and and they the way they approach him is it's flattery and we know what flattery is flattery is what you'll say to someone's face that you won't say to behind their back right and gossip is what you what you Uh, what you won't say to their face, you'll say behind their back. Both are awful. Both are a lie. And in this case, they employ flattery. And you you can almost feel it in the text as it says, Teacher, we know that you are true. I almost feel like they're doing, Teacher, we know that you are true. Don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. You're special. And you teach the way of God in truth. Mm, right? Yes. And nor do you care about anyone, for you are your own kind of person. You are just, hmm. And then they say, with all that understanding and that wisdom that you possess, could you just maybe tell us from that wisdom? Could you just tell us what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? (sighs) And they're like, now, this is where I think Donald Trump learned something. I hope he did. You see, What I've noticed about the president, whether you like him or not, I'm making an observation. Take it for what it is. We've all witnessed this. Somebody attacks him, and what does he do? He attacks him back. Little Rubio, low energy Jeb, Crooked Hillary, Pocahontas. They say something, and he hits them back. Anyone observe that, or is it just me? And he's up with that Twitter thing, three in the morning. <laughs> Just punching, punching, punching. And, and, and they lay this out, and Jesus punches them. Verse 18, Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Twitter, boop, send. <laughs> Boom. I mean, you, you, you don't, you're not going to make friends and influence people by going, why do you test me, you hypocrites? And they're like, what? What? We aren't hypocrites. We came here kindly and civilly, lying through your teeth. You and I both know, let's just cut through all the political correctness. You're a hypocrite. Now, you can't say something without backing it up with some fact. And he says, you're hypocrites. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? And he backs it up. He says, show me the tax money. Now, interesting, the tax money. A denarius, a denarius. Tiberius Caesar, son of the deified Augustus, and on the uh, 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 opposite, an image of the emperor's mother, Livia, as an incarnation of the goddess Pax, which is peace, with the words high priestess. Jews considered this, you ready? Jews considered this blasphemous. Caesar's a god, and here you have the emperor's mother, Livia, she's a goddess. Blasphemous pagan coinage. And he says, show me the tax money. And who gives it to him? Hello? Who were the people he was talking to? Stay with me here, people. Come on now. The Pharisees and the Herodians. And they go, oh, here it is. He's like, thank you. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They're like, son of a gun. This guy's good. He's really good. I mean, it's Caesar's. And it was in your pocket? Yes, it was. We're going to go now. He just nailed him. Whose image is this? Caesar's. You don't have the temple money you're carrying around a dinar? Yes, because it's it's somewhat more valuable. (laughs) And he just hammers them. And the scripture says, after he points this out, and they know after they recite Caesar, he says, okay, look, I got you, but let me make something clear. Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left them and went their way. Marveled. They're like... (laughs) Okay, that's a lot to process. I'm getting stretch marks on my brain. I need an Excedrin. He he just stumped them. I think about this in relation to the president I was asked to speak this last week and they were saying stuff, you know, talk about the president. And I I I used a book that I'd read, New Gingrich, Understanding Trump. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but I, I, it occurred to me, and I, and I pointed this out, I said, you know, and you've heard me say this, there's seven mountains of cultural influence. There's arts and entertainment, media, religion, politics, family, um, education, and business, right? And in each of those cultural mountains of influence, they're moved by certain commodities, Arts and entertainment, you want to sell movie tickets. Media, you, you know, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, you need to have followers. Politics, you need to win elections. Education, you, you got to be a part of the union. Um, you know, family, you want to have a healthy one. And we can go through all that. And if you want to change culture, you have to be able to move these mountains of influence. And, and I just said, okay, let's look at arts and entertainment. The man had the number one television show in America. So he obviously understands this cultural mountain of arts and entertainment. Business. I mean, the the, the Trump logo and, and the bill, he's got that. Politics. He, he took down 17 Republican candidates. And he spent the least amount of money of any modern day politicians. If you went to a, a campaign office and asked for a Trump sign, they'd charge you for it. Guy was tired than a tambourine. He won it with a Twitter account, which is media. A Twitter account. He just and and punching hypocrite. Low energy jab. You know, just boop, boop. And person bling, boom. Oh. <laughs> I remember I told Governor Huckabee when he was here. I said, you know, Mike, think about it. This guy took. He's like Samson. Samson took down a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of an ass. Trump took down. 17 Republican candidates with his own jawbone. Mike goes, the jawbone of an ass. <laughs> Family, he's been three times married, twice divorced, but his kids adore him and in their own right, they're doing well, whether you like them or not. You know, religion, I, I, I've watched him try to navigate the religious circles and he had the largest turnout in religious circles. I don't know how he does this. It's just, it's, it's It's insane. One of the things I think is he understands this passage of scripture. You see, this denarius was a day's wage. And, and this is what kept the economy rolling. And the inscription on it, you had Caesar, you know, you had Tiberius Caesar, and then on the back you had Livia, which is the, the goddess of peace, and it's a pagan coin, but Rome had its his boot on the neck of every other group of people in the world. It was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it's basically, we'll take a piece of that, and a piece of that, and a piece of that. But they, they ran the roads, the aqueducts, they did the commerce, they did the taxation, they had retirement plans, they had places, you know, they, they knew how to run a government, they, 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 they financed armies and they took over cultures and they, they had a system where they operated with coinage and they put this together. They had a Senate and they, they understood this concept of republic. And then it went to an oligarchy where it had an emperor and, and things changed. But this was, the, this, this was the coin you needed if you wanted to survive. That's why the Pharisees and the Herodians had one. If you wanted to survive, you needed that coin. Now, what's interesting about the collapse of Rome, if you've studied it, and it's one of the longest-lasting empires in the history of the world, over a thousand years the Roman Empire stood. But I wanted to read to you from one historian. He says, Rome collapsed because the vitality of her empire and the loyalty of her subject peoples were extinguished by big government and oppressive taxation. Although Roman rule was never popular among her subjects, especially in Israel, It initially brought them the benefits of peace and order, the rule of law and freedom of movement throughout the empire. Paul was able to travel all around because he was a Roman citizen and you had the papers and as a Roman citizen, you had the ability to travel and you had freedoms that were established and their roads, even today, if you go into the Mediterranean world, the old Roman empire, the roads are still intact. Aqueducts still operate. It is fascinating. They even had lighting systems for their roads. What they accomplished as as a culture was unbelievable, And, and all roads led to Rome where they understood highways and byways and commerce and trade and how to tax it and how to operate it and how to keep this machinery going so they could dominate the known world, and it all came on the back of that coinage. But this historian says, what Rome lacked, however, was an effective culture of technical innovation and wealth creation. You see, a third of the Roman Empire were slaves and they got free labor. A slave is someone who gets taxed 100% of everything they make, and they work for the sake of another human being's benefit without getting any remuneration. Instead, the empire relied on plunder and looting and newly conquered territories and the enslavement of their peoples, and they just kept taking and building. And they would tax their citizens, but never at an extensive rate. And the muscle power of forced labor was never in short supply for mining, manufacturing, agriculture, and construction. But this is the breakdown this historian points out. But by stigmatizing the work ethic and undermining the competitive position of free peasant farmers and artisans, slavery presented the emergence of a large and vigorous, wealth-creating middle class. With no new territories to loot, the Roman treasury became seriously overstretched and the emperors resorted to a policy of debauchery and the currency, They, they debauching the currency... To fill the gap between falling revenues and rising expenditures, because it takes a lot to run a government, especially the bigger the government. By AD 20, uh, two two ten, the silver content of the previously pure Roman denarius, which was pure silver, the silver content of the Roman denarius was only fifty percent of what it had originally been. Sixty years later, there's only five percent silver in it. That's called easing, quantitative easing. Anybody? Okay, just thought I'd throw that out there. The inevitable inflation that followed raised the price of a bushel of wheat from 10 denarii in AD 200 to 2 million denarii by AD 344. As the official Roman currency became increasingly worthless, worthless, Roman soldiers refused to be paid in it, and tax collectors refused to accept it in payment of taxes. By the 3rd century, Christian historian uh, Lactanius uh, uh, Lactantius, Lactantius wrote that the resources of the farmers were exhausted by outrageous burdens of all taxes. The fields were abandoned, and the cultivated land reverted to waste. It sounds a little bit like Venezuela, <laughs> used to be the fourth largest economy in the Western Hemisphere. Now they're starving, no production. Eventually, people started starving. And this historian concludes by saying, many fled the Roman empire for barbarian territory. And as one group said, we will flee to some place where we may live as free men. You see, the human heart always cries for freedom. And when you tax too much, people stop producing because we're working for the sake of somebody else. And the Lord said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's the cry of every human heart to be free. And the Apostle Paul said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And and we see this taxation. It increases in the Roman Empire, and the empire collapses based on that coin that Jesus said, simply, render unto Caesars what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So they paid the taxes, and the Roman Empire imploded. What happened? And, And if if we render unto Caesars what is Caesars, which is this coin that has the image of Tiberius Augustus, and then we have Livia, the goddess of peace, this pagan coin that even the Jews are exchanging and those in the Roman Empire exchanging, if we render, we keep the roads, but at a point, why did the roads implode and why did the government collapse? Well, we're going to get a quick financial lesson and we'll get back to the text. This is one of my favorites. Has anyone ever heard of the Laffer Curve? Eight of you? All right. Time to get educated.
1: Here we go. Let's discuss an important concept from economics, the Laffer Curve. This concept is named after the man who developed it, Arthur Laffer, a major American economist who has taught at the University of Chicago, University of Southern California, and elsewhere. The Laffer Curve illustrates the two most important things we need to know about taxes, how much money the government can raise from taxes, and at what level of taxation the government might start getting less not more revenue. The Laffer curve is illustrated here by a two-dimensional graph. The horizontal line is the tax rate that the government chooses, and the vertical line is the revenue that the government receives from that tax rate. First, because zero times any number is zero, if the tax rate is zero, then the government receives zero revenue. Woohoo! Accordingly, zero-zero is our first point on the curve. Now suppose the government chooses a very small tax rate, say 1%, The government will then begin to receive some revenue from citizens. This means that another point in the curve must be something like this. Now suppose the government charges a 2% tax rate. Then everyone would agree that it will receive even more revenue, which means that another point in the curve must be something like this. And if the government keeps raising the rate, then revenue will continue to go up at least when we're in the low tax rate part of the graph. This means that if we fill in the curve, it has an upward slope, at least when we're in the low tax rate part of the graph. Now suppose the government charges a 100% tax rate. If this happens, then no one would work. That is, why would anyone work when the government is going to take all the money that they make? And if no one works, then national income would be zero. This means that government revenue would be 100% of zero or zero. This means that another point of the curve must be here. Now, let's complete the curve. When we do, we see that the curve must have a hump. That is, it could look like this, or this, or this. But it has to have a hump. This is simply because the revenue line has to go up in the low tax rate part of the graph, and it has to start going down to reach the point we drew at the 100% tax rate. But if the curve slopes downward, it implies something remarkable, something that few of those who push for higher and higher taxes want to admit. It means that when tax rates are high, if you make them higher, you'll actually bring in less revenue to the government. This has in fact occurred in practice. For instance, during the Great Depression, when Congress passed the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Bill, although the bill raised taxes on imported goods, the revenue that came from those taxes actually decreased. A more recent example occurred in the early 1980s. After President Reagan and Congress drastically reduced the tax rates on the rich, the tax revenue that came from the rich actually increased. All economists, even the most left-wing ones, agree that the true Laffer curve, the one that reflects real life, has a hump. Now, therefore, the curve has a downward-sloping part, meaning at some point tax revenues start going down when you increase rates. So where then do economists disagree? They disagree about exactly where the hump occurs. When I took my first economics class in 1984 at Stanford University, the textbook said that the hump occurs somewhere around the 70% tax rate. But apparently I was taught something wrong. New evidence from... He was in California. ...suggests that the hump occurs at a much lower tax rate, something around 33%. That source is a study by Christina Romer and her husband, David Romer, both are economics professors at the University of California, Berkeley. Christina Romer was the chairman of President Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. In other words, the study was written by one of the most influential liberal economists in the United States, and it was published in the American Economic Review, the most widely respected economics journal in the world. The study examined how national income responds to tax rates. But as far as what concerns us here, the key point is that if you do the math, the results imply that the hump on the Laffer curve occurs where the tax rate is around 33%, much lower than economists previously thought. Let's now put these findings into political terms. They suggest that no matter what your politics, you should not want tax rates to be above 33%. Obviously, conservatives and many moderates think rates should be lower than that, but even if you are an extreme left-winger and your only goal is to make government as big as possible, you should still oppose a tax rate higher than 33%. The reason is that, as the Romer and Romer study suggests, when tax rates go higher than that, the government actually gets less money. Everyone of every political persuasion should pay attention to the Romer and Romer study and its important implications. They suggest that if we decrease tax rates, government revenues might actually rise. I'm Tim grossclose professor of political science and economics at UCLA. That's good. University. So there's your
0: education right there. Now the point is, at this at this juncture in Matthew 22, the tax rate in Rome was about forty percent. And and they're struggling over it, and there's already a, a, a frustration and anger in the citizenry. And these Pharisees and these Herodians are carrying the denarii with them because they operate in the context of the Roman government. They are subjected to Roman law. They're subject to operating on their streets and using the water from their aqueducts and being protected by their armies or suppressed by their armies. And that machinery is required. And so when they try to trip Jesus up and they say you know, is it lawful to pay taxes? <clears throat> and he asks for that coin. He poses this question that baffles them. He says, whose inscription is on this? And they say Caesar's. And then he says this statement, then render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. So what belongs to God in accordance with that scripture? Let's try that again. What belongs to God in accordance with that scripture? Right? And, and what's fascinating is on that coin, you have the image of Caesar Tiberius and Livia, uh, the, the goddess of peace. So now let's move to 2018 and the most widely used currency in the world. It's the standard currency of the world. the U.S. dollar. And what is written on our Money. In God, in God we trust. Why would a government put that on their paper? The idea of the founders, and this is a 60 year old model, which is the national motto, which means in God we trust, is this concept that the value of it is based on the character of its people. Does anybody want this $20 bill? Okay. How about if I crumble it up? We still okay. How about if I step on it with the shoes that I clean the dog do up with? You'll help me throw that away, yeah. I did a hundred dollar bill the first service, but nobody here has one this service. That's probably why you're late because you don't get up early to work hard. Is it is is it worth twenty dollars because the ink's worth twenty dollars? Or the linen is worth $20? Why is it worth $20? It's a promissory note, in the good faith of the United States government, what government? The government in God we trust. Okay, we can go through that later. Everybody wants to take over my message. So so this is the idea that this is a, and by the way, that is the most counterfeited bill in the world today, the U.S. $100 bill. As the most trusted currency. And the reason why is because there's significance behind it. So when Jesus says in Matthew 22, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he's saying, let Caesar run the government and give God everything. Okay. So everything belongs to God and we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So what he's recognizing is There's the authority of government based on the noetic covenant that God establishes governments on the earth for the benefit of man. And he says, look, you're going to need roads. You're going to need a a political compact. You're going to need agreement together to survive. You got to work through this. You got to understand you have a sin nature and you got to have a checks and balance. And otherwise people are going to always try to suppress you and they want you to be their slaves so that they can tax you and you work for them and they don't have to work. And in the history of the world, the number one form of a government was an oligarchy, whether it was a monarchy, fascist, communist, socialist. It's this idea that the, the elite rule the, the, the many. And you do their bidding so they don't have to work. And, and, and so he's saying, render unto Caesars what is Caesars and give unto God what is God's. And they're saying, okay, unto God what is God's. God is, he, he owns everything. And he's even ordained and authorized government people often have said, and they say, you know, pastor, you know what the chief aim of man is? And I've heard this and it's in the Westminster Catechism. And I I just have to tell you point blank, I don't agree with it. And some of you are going to think I'm a heretic or whatever it is, but the the chief aim of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. I want to go to the very first responsibility of man in the book of Genesis that predates the Westminster Catechism. And it's this, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Everyone say subdue. Subdue. That means govern and have dominion, which means work this through, authorize it, set it up, set up government, work through this process. And prior to, you go to to, um, uh, 27, verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we're created in the image, and we look at the image, what's on the image of the coinage? Uh, It's uh, Caesar Tiberius, and it's, uh, you know, Livia, goddess of peace. On ours, it's in God we trust, but this image, we've been created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb, and he made them male and female. He created them, and then he said to the male and female, he said, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Subdue it. Why do I use the word subdue? Well, it's found here in Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 It begins by saying our citizenship is in heaven. Paul wrote this. We're we're citizens of heaven as Christians from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that we may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to even what? Subdue Subdue all things to himself. So if we render unto gods what is God's, what on the earth belongs to him? Everything. Does he have the right to have some sort of a say in how it works? Are his people required to participate in these things in a godly manner? You know what makes the U.S. a special place? is It used to be you could do a, a, a deal with a handshake, and you were honest and truthful. As John Adams says, the republic can only survive with a moral people. And somewhere we separated the church from this idea of participating in a way that would be honorable and civil, and kind and one of the things I get often when I go across the country is pastors get upset that I'm in politics they say you know Romans 13 we don't need to contend for government it is what it is and it's going to always be what it is and they use Matthew 22 render unto Caesar what is Caesar's we got to be about God's business Romans 13 God appoints all positions of authority you know what we're supposed to submit to it whether it's communist fascist socialist you just you just deal with it I'm like, what? Look at Romans 13 in relation to our nation. This is Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now they're legitimate, these people that contend with me. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. I'm good with that. Unless I'm in North Korea or Venezuela or even in early, you know, England where the king would get Prima nocta, and it's your honeymoon night, and the king comes and says, you know, I'm the king, and I get to sleep with your bride the first night. No, you're going to be picking up your teeth with your broken arm. You pull that stunt, king. But he's got the army that detained you. Is that good? We're going to kill all children under the age of two. We're going to kill all Jews. Is that good? The Hebrew midwives didn't obey Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Rahab didn't obey. A little bit of rebellion. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And then we get to this, and this is what's confusing to anyone who says you just need to deal with it, whatever government you get. For rulers are not a terror to what? Huh. But to evil. So there's a contrast a government is supposed to protect good works and stand in opposition to evil works. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Does that work in North Korea or Nazi Germany? For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who would practice evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, for because of you, because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. You pay Caesar. But Caesar's supposed to be doing good things. I'll show you what I mean. When the people fear their government, there's tyranny. And when the government fears the people, there's liberty. Now let's go back to Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. I want that to resonate with you because we're talking about taxes. We're talking about Caesar. We're talking about render unto Caesar what is Caesar's unto God, what is God's. Jesus is contending. He silenced them. He handled it. And we get to Romans 13. Paul wrote this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And we talked about Venezuela. We talked about North Korea. We talked about the Hebrew midwives. We talked about Rahab. There are good governments or bad governments. We saw that there's a, a difference between good works and evil works. What is the answer? You know what's amazing about our founders? They struggled with it just like you do. And they sat down and they said, the nature of man in accordance with the scriptures and all that we deal with as human beings, how do we create a system of government that recognizes we're created in the image of God and a government that will honor that and do good? And so they they took this idea of the governing authorities and they made an authority that never before was ever existed on the face of the earth. And it's this, Amen. we, the people, the only government in the world where the people are the sovereign Amen. and they're the sovereign and they're outside government. They don't operate the government. They give that by representation. <laughs> and they split up the power because they don't want people to force others to do their bidding and they don't want the government to be too big so they do executive legislative judicial branch and they split the legislative branch between an upper and a lower house and then they're the only ones that they directly elect and then those folks appoint the president through an electoral college and then the president appoints the judges and they're supposed to keep all the power separated and the we the people who is the authority holds them accountable by establishing a moral government and as John Adams said only a republic can survive with a moral people and so they put we the people so you take we the people and go back to Romans 13, let every soul be subject to we, the people, for there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, ever resist the people, resist the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. This is revolutionary in the history of the world. Prior to that, the people were a handful that suppressed you and me. And now we have freedom. We have freedom because these individuals that created this concept of we the people didn't start there. They gave the preamble. We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense. Guess what all that requires? Taxes. Promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution of the United States of America. This is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And why is this so significant? because our mission statement was a shot that was heard around the world that set an entire people free with these words. And you know what's interesting about these next words you're about to see? It wasn't for America because it says, when in the course of human events, any anytime, any place, it becomes necessary for people, not just Americans, but any people on the face of the earth. I want to show you how you can render unto Caesar and still give to God everything. And the way you do it is this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, and we're going to recognize this, that men are created equal, and they're endowed by their creator. What? With certain inalienable rights, you can't put a lien on them, you can't take them away, and you can't give them away. And these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is the purpose for government, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. That word consent was, was what was started the Revolutionary War said to, the, to, to King George, you're not our king. We don't consent to let you have authority over us. Well, that's it. We're going to annihilate you. And they sent the full force of the British army and this upstart 13 colonies got together and said, uh-uh, we're creating the image of God. And God has given us inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You've usurped those and we've given you a long list of why you've done that. And we're going to stand with almighty God to defend the rights of mankind around the world. So that not only will we render unto Caesar, but we will do what is right as we give unto God every aspect of our culture. We, in God we trust. And so with this idea, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, why do we need to have a government of consent? Well, it's real simple. We're all created in the image of God. Look around the room, tall, short, half black. Right? Man, woman. Man, woman. We're all created in the image of God, and what does that mean? We're equal. Grant, would you stand up, please? Just stand up. Grant's taller than me. About the same age. What are you? Fifty. Uh, April twenty second. Yeah, well, that didn't help me. How old are you? Forty uh, nine. I am forty nine. I am fifty three, so I am older than him. Um, I might make more money than you do because we were talking earlier. Um, we we have different lives, so we're not we're not equal in capacity but we're equal in what? What makes us equal? Dignity. Grant is created in the image of God, and so am I. We have equality and dignity, not in capacity. Thank you, Grant. What's the point? The point is this. If we're equal, I can't do to Grant anything he doesn't give me consent to do, because we have inalienable rights. So they took Caesar, and they took God, and they did that not a theocracy cuz that's still an oligarchy they took we the people because god gave us the authority to subdue create government and they did and they did it in such a way that the inalienable rights of man would be protected in this nation conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal has flourished for over 240 years do you understand how significant that is this is amazing I'll close with this idea. What did I do with that 20? Here it is. In God we trust, yeah? It's not worth the ink. It's not worth the linen. But it's the image that it bears in God we trust. Now we render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. Governments are imp- necessary. But they're to be accountable to the God of the universe. You see, the government will pave the road so the gospel can get to the people. The government will protect with military force those who would seek to suppress our freedoms. will keep the shipping lanes open for free commerce so that the hungry can be fed. And that government does it when they're moral and they do it right when a moral people steps in to Caesar's world. Good government happens with good people. And you need to work through those processes and affect those seven mountains of cultural influence. You render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give unto God what is God's. And this is what I close with. All of you would stand in line if this were a $100 bill, if I were giving it away, even if I crumpled it and stepped on it with dog-do-laden shoes, which I didn't, I was just making it up. Maybe. You'd stand in line for this. And yet, when we look at Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This bill has value because the federal government puts its image on it. You and I have value because God put his image on you and me. And that value that he's placed on us, made in his image with an intrinsic value, For that reason alone, man has worth. So that we can say to the expanse of this big blue marble, to every human being that is entrapped or enslaved, whether it's in human trafficking or in starvation or in oppressive governments, we can say to them, you have been created in the image of God and my government will pave the streets that I can walk to tell you. That you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's why 80 cents of every dollar in evangelism comes from the United States of America. But if this nation thinks that the answer is in Caesar and not in God and we start worshiping the image on the coin instead of the God that we serve, the taxation will hit the laugher curve and everybody will be enslaved and a handful of people will rule and oppression will come. You've been creating the image of God to declare that folks would know the truth and the truth would set them free. Yes, we have governments. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but hold that government accountable to the God that we render everything to. And the reason why we do is because we're so valuable. We have been purchased with the blood of Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Jesus bled and died for your sins and mine. He gave us everything and nothing will he hold back. But he expects us to give it all as well. You see, Christianity isn't segmented. And that's what I struggle with with the Westminster Catechism. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That makes it all about me and not about others. He says, go and subdue, not with your your boot on their neck, but establishing a system of government that blesses human beings, that they can experience everything that they were designed to enjoy, that we're equal. And let that image of God flourish. And let our kids grow up with that understanding of who they are in God. And watch what happens to a world that desperately needs to be set free. Get excited about that. Because his image is in front of me as I look out into the room. And it's not the image of Caesar. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who has purchased you with a price. And he has set you free that you can go and set the world free. In Jesus' name, amen. Good? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you that your image is upon us and that our intrinsic value is from you. And Lord, we thank you that you have said to us that we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but unto God what is God's. And Lord, since the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, our lives are given for your glory, but that that glory would be manifest, that thy kingdom would come, thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what is your will? That men and women would know the truth and the truth would set them free that this nation conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal would be used upon this big blue marble to declare freedom to those who are oppressed, that we would say this is a day of liberation, but only a moral people can call upon a mighty God. Those who have given their hearts to the Lord and realize that they've been creating the image of God and said, Lord, here's my life, use it. It's not about me, it's about you. And so, God, please, I pray your inspiration and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you stand, I want to share with you this one last thing. A revival occurred in Wales. And every time the gospel takes root in the heart of men and women, there's cultural transformation. And you can do your own study on this. It was a fascinating study. When the revival hit Wales in the British Empire, they had to retrain all the pack animals in the mines because the animals didn't know how to take a command without someone cussing at them. In addition, they had the largest amount of bankruptcies after the revival in Wales because all the bars shut down. You know where the barbershop quartet came from? Police officers didn't have anything to do in Wales. So they started singing. Do you see the power of the gospel It's not so that you can raise your hand and sit and go, Pastor, quit talking about politics. It's, I have received freedom, and now I'm going to go give it and live for it. And so take that to heart, and when you walk out those doors, live in accordance with that truth. Let's stand and worship the Lord and bless him.